0: Welcome to Bunker Gold. In this week's throwback treat, we've chosen BuzzFeed, Why Eating Insects Will Save the World, from September 2021. In this edition, Ros Taylor discusses the perks of munching on creepy crawlies and even tries some crickets herself.
1: Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. If you're listening in Europe or the US... Chances are you haven't willingly eaten an insect, but two billion of the world's population do, and it's a lot more sustainable, and arguably kinder, than farming animals. But can we overcome our revulsion at the thought of biting into a bug? With me is Brian Fisher, often known as the Ant Guy because of his expertise in ants, and African ants in particular. He's an entomologist and heads the Fisher Lab at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. Brian, welcome to The Bunker.
0: Great to be here.
1: You've been studying insects for some years, but in 2016, you decided to take a more hands-on approach to the loss of habitats and malnutrition, in particular in Madagascar. Tell us about some of the problems the island is facing.
0: Well, I went to Madagascar for the same reason maybe you would go. It's on your bucket list because of the wild animals you can see there. Everything is unique in Madagascar, in part because of this Long isolation that the, the, the country broke away from Africa about 120 million years ago, along with India. Then India dropped Seychelles and kept going north and then hit Asia, forming the Himalayas. But Madagascar, all by itself, evolved this incredible life. As a biologist, as a tourist, that's what you go to see. And I did that. I went there and explored all these incredible animals, discovering over a thousand new species of animals, ants in particular. But I began to see what you don't know about Madagascar, the fact that about 50% of the children are malnourished. People live off of only $2 a day. It's in the top 10 of the poorest countries in the world. And there's only about 10% of the natural habitat left. That means you can't put more cattle on already degraded landscapes. You can't cut down more forest. There's very little forest before the forest is gone. And I realized back in, about four years ago, that if I really cared about the biodiversity, I was going to have to change my program. I have to stop just going to that isolated, pristine forest and start working with the people around the forest. And I initially thought there was nothing I could do, but then it hit me. There was something I could do as an entomologist. Even though I thought, well, I I may not have saved a single tree before, but there is a way as an entomologist See, the people in Madagascar, in fact, our studies show 70% still today eat edible insects. And I thought, what if we could actually use our science to figure out how to make these edible insects that they already eat available all year round? In other words, instead of having them available only two or three weeks each year, so there's a moment of plenty, what if we could actually farm them, add technology, and create these local small-scale farms that would provide the protein and healthy nutrition in a sustainable way. And that's what we've been doing to great success for the last four years.
1: And you farm crickets, don't you? Why crickets?
0: Well, oh, that's a good question. And in our initial studies of the literature of the, over the last 400 years has shown that in Madagascar, a real staple source of protein historically has been grasshoppers and locusts. And it's like the meat and potatoes. Our early literatures shown that the recipe has not changed for at least 400 years. What they do is when there's plentiful grasshoppers or locust outbreak, they would gather up all the locusts, boil them, dry them in the sun, grind them into a powder, and then use that powder as a supplement to their food, especially when they didn't have a crop to eat. Early explorers said, wow, Madagascar is one of the few places they've ever visited without famine. Well, there's famine there now. So we wanted to kind of replicate that. But it's difficult to farm grasshoppers and locusts. So we turned to the cricket. Now, they do eat some species of cricket. And we really wanted to grow that one initially. But as it turns out, it wasn't suitable for large scale farming. This species, even though it's as big as a mouse, and they barbecue them on sticks, we thought that would be great. But when the males get together, they fight. So we chose some other native species that once they're grown, ground into a powder, it could be used exactly as they used the other cricket, the other locust, and the other grasshoppers. So the product at the end can be incorporated just as the others, but we're using another native species that's more suitable to dense farming. And, and that's what we're farming right now.
1: And what's the nutritional value of the powder? It's quite protein rich, isn't it?
0: Right. So when I began, even back just four years ago, that was kind of the motto in all the edible insect research around the world. Um, even in Europe, for example, it's protein, protein, protein. But since then, studies have really shown that it's more than just protein. It's all the other micronutrients that are really beneficial and it improves our mi- gut microbiome. And this is really shown out in our studies with health clinics, especially the TB clinics in the South of Madagascar. We were using our product for famine relief. And this health clinic said, oh, we want some product to test it and our patients. And we said, sure. And could you do us a favor and do a controlled experiment where you give half the patients cricket powder, kind of the standard amount is 25 grams in a meal, and the other half, just keep your normal diet. The half that had it gained weight, and responded to the medication, basically for the first time. TB is very difficult to treat, especially if you're malnourished. Within a month, those patients that didn't have the cricket powder basically held a sit-in and refused to eat unless they too received the cricket powder. And then they (laughs) wanted it every meal. So basically every meal had to have a cricket powder. And immediately, this was a boom for the the health clinics, and every health clinic wanted it. So we were like, wait a minute, we don't have enough product. We're trying to feed 55,000 people in the South. We also launched this big school lunch program because we felt we really could improve education by making sure the young children were not malnourished and they weren't hungry, and so they could learn. And all of a sudden, the demand just blossomed, and, and we were really stuck with a very kind of small program and trying to figure out how to expand it rapidly. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. To address this, we immediately started building our first really large scale farm in the capital. We went from a modest size, like house size farm to a giant factory size. That isn't really a solve Madagascar's nutrition problem. We're shipping powder to where it's needed. What we really want to do, And our next phase is is wanting to do this, is actually build the farm at the health clinics, build a school farm at the schools, and build a cricket farm in the middle of where the famine is happening. And we can do that. That's just a combination of research on what's the most suitable insect species, locating the most suitable feed that's available locally, and then teaching the locals how to actually farm this. This is a solution that's really scales for all these types of problems. And there's another bonus that we didn't even think about in the beginning is that these crickets, they produce poop. And this, what we call frass for insects, is a fantastic fertilizer. And we've been now showing that you can take the fertilizer and add it to the local's vegetable gardens or reforestation efforts And it's a real boost. It bioactivates the soil and really, for the first time, permits rapid uh, reforestation or sustainability for those crops so they don't have to go and cut down more forests.
1: So how do people use it to cook? Is it stirred into whatever else people are cooking? Does it have a distinctive taste at all?
0: Well, that's a good question. So as a Westerner, maybe, I initially was worried about introducing cricket powder The school lunch programs of the capital, for example. So, we worked with two of the most famous chefs in uh, Madagascar and they developed kind of modern recipes that they could use and actually showcase at their restaurants. And as it turned out, that was all unnecessary. Just incorporating the cricket powder in the traditional way was how it was best appreciated and used by the school's um, lunch programs, even in the capital. And what that is, is Almost a meaty, somewhat chocolatey powder that's best added to a sauce, which is how they eat there. They have a sauce and they add it to the rice. And that delicious meal is enhanced by the cricket powder. So it's just like a supplement to their cooking. Just a spoonful can be added to their porridge in the morning or to their lunch or dinner meals, which include rice as a staple and then a sauce added to it. It's easy to do. And the real plus is that the cricket powder is stable. You don't have to refrigerate it. You just have to keep it dry in a plastic bag or a box. And then it stays up for two years in a home.
1: Can you see it becoming part of people's diets in the US and the UK, potentially? I mean, at the moment, we have a situation where people are getting more into protein powders. A big company here is called Huel, for example, where people which people will use as a meal replacement. Effectively, do you think people would take to this if it was presented in the right way, and if it they saw it as a way of quickly getting sustainable protein in their diets?
0: That's a great question, and 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 there are a lot of people uh, in, invested in the assumption that yes, they will. So there are many, as you know, uh, edible insect farms that are adding supplements, and they're moving quicker in areas with least resistance and one of them is the health conscious people but there's also this sustainability issue many people care about the fact that it's a very most humane way to harvest animals the animals are harvested at the end of their life after they reproduce and laid eggs they're harvested our goal is to harvest three days before they would die normally and second it requires less water less carbon emissions and there's a lot of Right things about it for the conscious person. And that's really for some people, that's all it takes for them to try it. And if they try it in the right way, where they incorporate it into foods that they love, they will come back and keep using it. I've encouraged people to try it and they made the mistake of just spooning it in and taking a big spoonful. It's like taking a spoonful of flour. You don't eat it that way. You have to incorporate it into food. But there is going to be a slow battle because of this perception. But I think people are beginning to realize that they have to take a little bit of risk. Our systems around us are in crisis. We have crisis everywhere and we have to make some bold changes. You know, we have the billionaires playing with this idea that we're going to terraform Mars. Meanwhile, we are changing Earth into Mars. These types of issues really can only be addressed by radical change. And there is some radical change change that's needed in our food business, in a sense. The agribusiness is one of the greater sources of greenhouse gases, and it can't sustain feeding a growing population like in Africa, in Madagascar. It's a, it's a very simple change we can all try. However, it's a very young industry. I still think for the Western markets, we really need more development from chefs, more developments from presentation and marketing in a sense to overcome this presentation. And on top of it, we have found that there are many, many insects that have potential. Right now the world is only farming a few species of insects. And insects are super diverse. And we're in Madagascar trying to bring more and more insects kind of online to farming. We have one called the bacon bug. This thing is so delicious it tastes like bacon. It's so fatty. You can just stick it in a skillet and and not even add any liquid to it. It'll just farm. It'll just boil and, and be greasy like bacon. It's one of my favorites. Now, if we could introduce that one, people will just love it. Everybody loves bacon.
1: So you're an entomologist, but you've grown frustrated with the slow progress that you feel is being made in that field. What holds back the study of entomology?
0: Well, I think it's perceptions, again, people don't realize that insects, you know, in terms of the world, insects are the glue that holds ecosystems together. That's how we have forests. That's how we have life, is that the insects are there doing their job. We get more excited by the fact that we see a tree rather than that there are insects there. That's just common, right? We get excited by the what we call the green cycle, the growth, the beauty around us, but we forget that life is a complete cycle. There's also a brown cycle that turns over that growth into decomposition and nutrients to be grown again. That's the world of the insects. And we can take advantage of that. They've had 300 million years to evolve how to convert plant matter into protein in a sense. They can concentrate. So we can go out and study those insects and then figure out what species is best for converting that waste product. It could be spent millet from beer brewery, or it could be a, 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 a not just weed. We could figure out what insect is best at converting that into protein and take advantage of it. Insects will in the future be, a, has to be a great source of protein for the world. And I can, I tell people, now look, you're excited about going to Mars guess what? You'll be eating there. We've all seen the movie, right? You'll be growing potatoes. But for protein, believe me, the only thing that could be grown on Mars efficiently will be insects.
1: So get used to it now.
0: Yes, get used to it now.
1: Brian, thanks so much for joining us.
0: It's been a great pleasure talking with you.
1: Joining me in the studio is Tilly Collins, a senior fellow at Imperial College London who teaches ecology and entomology, which is, of course, the science of insects. Tilly, welcome to The Bunker. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And it really is a bunker. We're in a small, dark room in the depths. Yeah, it's great to be back in the studio, actually, because for such a long time, we haven't been recording in a studio due to COVID. Tilly and I are going to be tasting some insects later on, something I must admit I approach with apprehension. But first, tell us your history with insects. When did you start to study them?
2: I I started to really study insects for my PhD. I I did my PhD on aphids, and I know really more about aphids than most people in the world. And and I actually am really very fond of those little creatures. Um, So for my PhD, I did aphids. And then after that, I worked on some beetles. And then I started to work on mosquitoes. And I worked on mosquitoes for about six years But all the way through in the background was the idea that insects are extremely efficient in all sorts of ways and extremely efficient to produce as food. So we're going to be talking about why we should be eating
1: them, but why we should be eating less meat and dairy because for the sake of cutting carbon and methane emissions, if not because we care about the animals themselves, we really do have to start eating less of those. And the National Food Strategy says we should eat 30% less meat by 2032, which is a pretty massive ask. And it's going to take a big shift, isn't it? Especially among people who don't have the time or money to find
2: and cook new vegetarian recipes. I think, you know, what 30% really means is that you're kind of dropping meat two evenings a week. For a lot of people, that that's just a change of habit. It's not going to be a huge change logistically because maybe you'll just do extra veg and and have the veg without the meat. So it won't be meat and two veg, it'll be three veg. It's a mindset change rather than a logistical challenge. And that what that will enable us to do is ensure better welfare standards and better environmental standards for animal rearing. And it'll be very good for our health, because most of the animal meat that we eat is actually not terribly good for our health, even though we find it utterly delicious.
1: You carried out an investigation in 2019 on how insects can be made more palatable. And you did some research with primary school children, I think, on eating insects. Tell us more about that and what you found.
2: I had a wonderful MSc student who was really interested in this, and her name was Pauline Vascu. And she went into schools and talked a lot to children and showed them lots of pictures of insect food so we were allowed into schools to talk to children but we weren't allowed to actually feed them insects at that point but talking to them and trying to understand their reluctances but what she she also managed to do was get questionnaires home to all their parents so we could understand the family background and whether the parents were at all habituated or not and what we really found is that People don't like to see the bits of insects, that that's a bit too real. But most of the time, they're perfectly happy with the concept. And the younger you are, the more happy you are with the concept. There's absolutely no problem to many children in eating insects, especially if they can't see the bits. So it's almost, it's not that similar to when you don't particularly want to see a
1: cow or a chicken just before you eat it, but you're happy with seeing it shrink wrapped in some plastic before you cook it. It's a question of taking out the edible parts and making them
2: seem less living, as it were. Yes, I mean, with, with, with mammals and big animals, we tend, and birds, of course, we tend to only eat bits of them. So we leave the carcass behind but with insects you mostly eat the whole thing and it's small enough that that's a mouthful or maybe two mouthfuls for the really big ones but on the whole it's 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 a small thing and you eat the whole thing instead of wasting large portions of the animal
1: and you found that you know they are more open children to the idea of eating insects is that is it partly then a question of catching people early in their lives before they become you know, their tastes become too rigid, if you like.
2: Yes, and it, it's perception as much as anything else. I mean, if you say to people, you know, would you like, would you eat snails? Most people will say yes to eating snails. But if you say, would you like to eat a slug? They will react quite violently to the idea that you might eat a slug. They're the same thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> pretty much anyway. But our, our, our cultural tastes are set. There are two billion people in the world who are perfectly happy to eat insects. But in our developed world, we've somehow got the idea that it's, it's not something we do. And in many areas of the developing world where they, they view our diet as a kind of aspirational thing, they're starting to view eating insects as food for the poor. So we're going to try
1: some insects We're having some Eat Grub branded ones that come in little packets, a bit like the ones you uh, find for salted peanuts or one of those little snacks you get in the pub for eating with your beer. And this will be the first time I've tried insects because I did buy a couple of years ago, a bag of discounted crickets from Sainsbury's. They were on a special offer. But I chickened out of actually eating one. <laughs> I just couldn't bring myself to do so. I had meant to, but I couldn't. Why do I find this idea so repellent when I'm happy to eat sushi and I'm happy to eat mussels? I'm not happy to eat snails, I will admit. I've always found those quite repellent. But what is the barrier to eating insects that we have in Europe in particular? Uh,
2: it's, it's entirely cultural. I mean, do you eat prawns? Yep. So why not eat a woodlouse? Yeah, because some
1: of them bite and sting me. And then I associate them with, um, with disease as well. And, and flies in particular, um, I have an absolute horror of.
2: Yes, we do associate flies with disease. And, and that's not an unwarranted thing, given that most of the time we see flies on, on dog poo in the park. This is, you know, we do have reservations. But good production and hygienic production of insects leads to an enormous pr- volume of protein very, very efficiently that can be turned into anything. And what we're starting with here, with with these delicious crickets, <laughs> is the picked... hardcore end of, of cricketing. <laughs> Tilly's picked up a packet of salt and vinegar
1: crickets. Yeah. So we're quite intrigued about this because it's obviously quite an overwhelming flavour if we get it right. And I wonder how much I'll be actually able to t- taste cricket as opposed to salt and vinegar
2: do, do, <laughs> are you expecting them to have their own taste, as it were? They're slightly nutty crickets. They they have that rounded and quite full flavour that many nuts have. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they they taste like. And I have to say, these are these are great crickets because they've had the legs removed. <laughs> so one, one of the things <laughs> I find tricky about eating insects is when I get bits of cricket legs stuck between my teeth.
1: Yeah, I, it's a bit like actually when you get bits, those bits of prawn leg stuck between your teeth. Though, yeah. isn't it? It's a similar similar thing. It's yeah. just an
2: annoyance. Yeah. Whereas cricket flour is no problem at all. I put that <laughs> into brownies very often. My children have stopped complaining. You you make brownies for your kids with with insect
1: in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, this is good. Right, yeah, I'm going to take taste. a plunge now. Yes. Oh God. <laughs> You see, they do look distressingly like dried grub to me. You see, that's that's the problem, and that's uh, partly because the the legs have been removed. But I'm going to take the plunge. Okay, I couldn't actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not heavily salt and vinegar. Certainly, I know some brands. Yeah, Pringles. It's much stronger than that. Just one is quite. It's very. It's very light. And it's very crunchy, isn't it? It's very light, it's very crunchy. It's it's quite
2: it's got a bit, a bit of an of after, after
1: bite, hasn't it? It's a bit sort of oh, how do you describe it?
2: Yeah, it is nutty when you're on the aftertaste. It's quite chitiny. It's got it's got quite fibrous. Mm. It's a very healthy food in that way. They they mm. have low carbohydrate and quite high protein and quite high fiber. So they're actually very good for us. They're a really great part of the diet. And in in many areas of the world that eat them. They move insects with the seasons in the same way that we have, you know, used to have a very seasonal diet. But actually, we have a less seasonal diet with a huge carbon footprint these days. So they would eat different insects at different times of the year. I
1: think we'll try some. Uh, well, I'll try some salted toffee. I know you're less keen on salted toffee. Do you want to try the smoky BBQ? Eat grubs here, and uh, we'll see what those are. Those I've,
2: ha- I've had those before. But as I said, we're we're starting with the hardcore end of insects. We're starting with recognisable insects. A lot of the market is, is in insect powders, and that's a huge growing part of the market because you can raise insects on agricultural waste. Right. So the kind of things that you might not quite know what to do with in the agricultural system, you can then use to make protein, which sometimes gets used for human flowers but can also fall straight in to fish and poultry production systems and is a very, very natural diet. So they take the late star maggots of, of things like the black soldier fly and can feed those very readily to fish, which saves an awful lot of excess fishing in the oceans. So we can leave some of the smaller fish that get used for that kind of thing in the oceans. And we can use our agricultural waste to to produce flies to do that.
1: does make sense. Right, I'm going to try a a toffee-flavoured cricket now. Yep. And see what that's like. Hmm. Yeah. It's not quite sweet enough, actually. (laughs) I was expecting it a bit more... um, Yeah. So, first, you don't really get much cricket and I think the cricket aspect, yeah, only seems to hit after about 10 seconds, I think. And then you get a sense of what what it is that you're eating as opposed to the
2: flavour surrounding it. It's not great, but it's perfectly edible.
1: I mean, there's nothing, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah.
2: If you were hungry in most circumstances, you'd be perfectly happy to eat this.
1: Yeah. What are yours like, the smoky BBQ?
2: Hmm. The smoky BBQ. <laughs> 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 there's not much cricket left in that flavour. They're a vehicle for... A flavouring. bit like toast. The first one, the, the salt and vinegar was pretty good. Hmm. When you mentioned earlier that you're quite happy to eat sushi. That's been a huge cultural change. Yes, it the, has. The English yeah. did, just didn't know what sushi was hmm. and were very resistant to the idea of raw fish. But now we eat it very readily and there are yo-sushis and all sorts of sushi outlets all over our high streets. It's a very popular component of, of easy, fast food. So we do shift our diet patterns and it could happen that we can shift them in the direction of being much more open to insects.
1: Veganism is obviously becoming more and more popular as people and some people are vegan for environmental reasons and some are vegan because they find the idea of eating animals disgusting or because they don't like the way that animals are treated in the food production system. And you know, sometimes it's a combination of all three. Could a vegan be happy to eat insects according to those values. I mean do we know for example whether they suffer pain insects?
2: They certainly experience the world and they feel things and they'll move off something that's too hot or too cold and so I think that there's certainly a lot of evidence that they they're very responsive quite whether that's pain or not in the way that we understand pain. I don't know. We do know that they're much more well we're much better adapted to living in big groups than many of the animals that we try to farm are. So, you know, cows' natural habitat uh, in the wild cattle is small family herds that are quite mobile in the landscape. It's not several hundred or even thousands of cattle in a tightly confined space. Whereas for many insects, that's not a problem. Maggots will, will aggregate tightly on a food resource and don't have a problem in, in that sense of animal husbandry. There's a lot of work being done now on that aspect of it, on, on the ethical aspect and on trying to understand the animal's experience going through it. I think for a vegan, it's problematic because they are animals. They're not vertebrates, but they are animals. So they they are alive and they have a sentience in some way. So it is going to be problematic for vegans. And we don't have a complete understanding of the animal's experience. We certainly know that ethically you harvest fast. So you either freeze or heat shock very quickly animals that that are that size. It doesn't take a long time to kill a very small animal.
1: And as you say, they're not concerned about being closely packed together in the way that clearly other animals are.
2: No. Every so often you read about... Now, in Asia, there are... some very very big farms, and some of them are sort of much more ad hoc than the ones that we have in Europe. The, the European farming of insects is very high tech, and that's how they keep pest management down. So they don't have, They try to reduce pests in the factories by having extraordinarily high hygiene standards. That may not be the case, and there are, there are kind of ad hoc cockroach factories, which sometimes you get a breakout, and you read about a breakout in oh the paper, God. and it says, you know, a million cockroaches escaped. So they, they, <laughs> there are big numbers of insects in some of the farms. With the other new f-
1: kinds of food, it has often been what you might call, you know, food thought leaders who introduce things? I mean, it was always supposed to be Elizabeth David who brought the idea of eating olive oil to Britain, for example. And obviously people like, you know, celebrity chefs and have had a massive impact on what people are prepared to eat. But is it going to be different with insects? Because it's not a food that you necessarily want to buy and take home and cook. It's going to be a lot easier, isn't it, if it's
2: presented to you in a eat it now form? Yes, to a certain extent. Except that if it's an easy ingredient that adds to the protein and nutritional value of something that you're preparing, if you're making a, you know, a bolognese, you can make an insect bolognese just as easily as you can make a, a beef bolognese. Although the people in Bologna might be a little distressed with the idea of insects in it. So but what form would it take, the uh, the it, insects in the bolognese. You can get you know, mealworm mince. They're serving it at schools in Wales. There's a, the Welsh, who are very ahead of the, the <laughs> sustainability thing, have got a programme where there are several schools, primary schools and secondary schools, in which they are using insect protein to make the Bolognaises and the kids are fine.
0: John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts
1: I also wanted to ask you about pets because Britons have acquired, I think, 3.2 million new pets during lockdown. That means we have 12 million cats and 12 million dogs that all need to be fed and we know what food they normally eat. Is it a quick and easy win, if you like, to move them over
2: to an insect-based diet? Is that something we should be doing? There are quite a lot of companies coming into that space. And again, because it's so sustainable, because you use the agricultural waste, it's Very easy to do. But one of the things that's happened with this great new wave of pet ownership is that they're quite often viewed as, as, you know, almost as children. And people want to give them the premium cuts. They don't want to give them the old style of animal food, which is the kind of, you know, the roiled up carcass. They want it's, it's, they want to give them something really delicious because they love them in a completely different way to the, uh, to the sort of form of functional animals that we used to have. So now these pets are in competition with us for the kind of cuts of meat that we want to eat. So what we need to do is introduce the idea of a premium cricket, you know, that that your
1: dog deserves. And
2: yes, <laughs> yes that would yes. perhaps be a way around it. We had some fabulous students some years ago who, who set up a startup in Paris called Entomojo, and have done extremely well with insect-based pet food. They're now in large chunks of Asia, all over Europe, and it, it took a while for them to get the recipes right so that they were as appetising to dogs and cats as the things that they were used to getting.
1: Presumably, it's a lot cheaper to farm gram per gram in terms of the protein and the nutrients that that the meat brings to farm insects rather than meat and indeed to catch fish as well. But what sort of ratios are we talking about? Is it a great deal cheaper
2: to farm insects than it is to farm animals? It will be enormously cheaper. It's still going through quite a lot of development and we have some complexities with the legislation in this country, especially since Brexit. We've got a problem since Brexit because there is no legislation. So we have, on on the one hand, we're giving grants to lots of companies to develop this, but at the other end they're very uncertain about what they're allowed to sell and, and whether these count as novel foods or are they not novel foods because, in fact, humans have been eating... Insects for millennia and millennia, and there's strong ethno cultural histories of entomophagy. So we're unsure where they sit legislatively, which is constricting expansion of the businesses at the moment. But once they're, they're up and running in, in bigger scale factories, then they will be economically much, much better. Well, I'm going to
1: have one last salt and vinegar. <laughs> <Was> <laughs>
2: those uh, insects, ones are the salt it,
1: and vinegar. Yes,
2: those are the, those are the smoky bbqs. Yes, I'm
1: going to have one last salt and vinegar one. And yes, I'm urge urge us all to eat more insects. And I will be trying to overcome my instinctive di- worry about <laughs> about eating these creatures by, <laughs> a, by a bouncing gym bar. <laughs> <you know. laughs> (laughs) Tilly, thanks so much for talking to me. My pleasure. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder, Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily.
2: The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranevich, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme Tune by Kenny Dickinson. The bunker is a Podmaster's production.